Hi, welcome everybody. Um, thank you for joining us for Lobbying 101 for Animals, hosted by the New York City Bar Association Animal Law Committee. Really pleased to see you all here. I thought before we jump in and before I read the bios of the panelists and we jump into the discussion, I might give you a little bit of context about the importance of this program. Um, so just a little background on the Animal Law Committee. We're one of many committees of the New York City Bar Association. And in addition to um, producing programs like this, um, our main focus is looking at city, state, and federal legislation that impacts animals. And we determine whether or not we're going to support or oppose that legislation. So based on that, then we do very detailed research legal analysis. And we sit, excuse me, submit commentary to the sponsors of those bills. Um, Chris Wallach, sitting over there, is the president of the, near, of the uh, Animal Law Committee presently. And Sajal Singave, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce your name wrong. She's our co-president, maybe you're saying? Secretary of the Bar Association, uh, excuse me, the Animal Law Committee. And just a little bit of background on myself. Um, I became an animal activist in 1997, and I did what a lot of people typically do. Um, at the beginning, a lot of protests, a lot of vigils, a lot of public education, and I think I started getting a little frustrated that I didn't know how I was going to see results. And um, at the time, sorry, I'm a little nervous. At the time, I had moved into New York City, and um, there was this place called the Wetlands Political Action Center for Animals. Basically, it was this big music center, but downstairs there was um, a whole bunch of different social justice causes and groups that met. And so the Political Action Committee for Animals, what we did was we would um, do petitioning to get um, candidates on the ballot. And we would um, try to, if there was legislation we wanted to support or ballot initiative we wanted to introduce, we would get tons of signatures, the requisite number of signatures to get those initiatives on the ballot. Um, from there, I became one of the founding members of the League of Humane Voters of New York City. And basically, that's really going to get into what Julie and Nancy and Jennifer are going to talk about today, about really becoming political for animals, um, endorsing candidates for office, um, working on their campaigns, campaigns to get them into office, and then working to introduce and pass legislation on behalf of animals. So with that, I'm going to read the bios for each of our esteemed panelists. Okay, starting with, our first presenter is going to be Julie Lewin. She's the founder of the National Institute for Animal Advocacy and author of Get Political for Animals and Win the Laws They Need. Julie is the founder and the president of the National Institute for Animal Advocacy and the author of a comprehensive how-to manual, manual, Get Political for Animals and Win the Laws They Need. It's available at www, I think you all have a bio, nifa.org. Julie's prior experience includes lobbying for animals at the Connecticut State House and serving as a political organizer and journalist. And just to let you know, this was probably my first book that I had bought about getting political for animals, and I meant to bring my copy. <laughs> um, I don't know, I, you probably have several versions or maybe updated versions since somewhat. then. Somewhat, yeah, somewhat. somewhat. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is the Bible. If I had brought it, you would have seen it tabbed, highlighted. Um, I highly recommend her book. Um, next speaking tonight is going to be Nancy Blaney. She's the Director of Government Affairs of the Animal Welfare Institute. She has advocated on behalf of animals for more than 35 years. You admitted that. Yes, you did. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's amazing. 
Um, at the Welfare and Animal Welfare Institute, she's responsible for working with federal and state legislators and regulators, as well as other interest groups in support of improving animal welfare, the prosecution of animal cruelty crimes, and public awareness of the relationship between animal abuse and other forms of violence. Nancy serves as co-chair of the Animal Cruelty Advisory Council of the Association of Prosecuting Attorneys and is a recipient of the APA's Lifetime Achievement Award. She's also a member of the National Sheriff's Association's Animal Cruelty and Abuse Committee. She has made presentations on the subjects of legislation and employing the legislative process on behalf of animals, as well as on animals and interpersonal violence to audiences of both judges, law enforcement, prosecutors, domestic violence and animal welfare advocates and others. The AWI became the first advocate for animals on Capitol Hill in 1951. AWI has been a leader in achieving the most significant federal animal protective protection laws and has extended its protection to improving the enforcement of state and local cruelty laws and calling attention to the relationship between animal cruelty and interpersonal violence. And third, we'll be speaking, will be Jennifer Haig. She's um, the Legislative Affairs Manager of the Animal Legal Defense Fund. At the Animal Legal Defense Fund, Jennifer is responsible for implementing creative strategies to pass laws that help animals and defend against bills that would hurt them. As a graduate of, she's a graduate of the Northwest, of Northwestern University with a BS in Education and Social Policy. She also studied politics, philosophy, and economics for a year at Oxford University. She began her career in the corporate world while advocating for animals in her personal time. She was a leader in signature gathering for a statewide ballot, ballot measure initiative. She testified at hearings and lobbied on bills in her state capital and co-founded a vegan advocacy organization in her local community of Salem, Oregon. Jennifer is currently on the board of the Humane Voters of Oregon, and while, passion, and while her passion for animals has turned into her full-time career, she still volunteers at local farmed animal sanctuaries, and she shares her office with her two rescue shelter dogs, Koa, mm -hmm. a 12-year-old shepherd mix, and Zephyr, Zephyr. Zephyr. Mm -hmm. a five-year-old retriever mix. Um, so um, they're going to talk to us about why animal legislation um, is so important to the protection, both the legislation and enforcement of that legislation for animals. So with that, oh, and just to say um, how the program will go, um, uh, first Julie will speak, then Nancy will speak, and then Jennifer will speak, and we'll take questions at the end, if that's okay with everybody. Okay. Um, Julie? Well, if I'd known I could submit that long a bio, I surely would have. <laughs> we can hear it now. Oh, well, no, it's part of my time. Is this about good sound? It's about good? Okay. Um, National Institute for Animal Advocacy, NIFA. Um, it's my goal today to convince you that without a political organization for animals at every level of government, that is an organization that endorses political candidates in every city, town, county, or state, um, we are a sleeping giant and the animals pay the tragic price. My book, Get Political for Animals and Win the Laws They Need, it is no longer available in print, but any day now, and it should have been a month ago, it will be available at nefa.org online for free or for donation. And if you would, uh, which is a big development, so um, if you would email me um, at jlewin at nefa.org, um, I'll make sure you're up to date with what's happening with it. Uh, or you can, you know, whatever, email me for any purpose. 
So I want to convince you today to, um, using the words of the late um, senator from Minnesota, Paul Wellstone, who'd been a social justice activist, he said to his people, dare to imagine what politics can be. And I'm saying that, dare to imagine what politics can be for animals. Now, let's look at the groups who are, who are, who are part of the, of the lawmaking, you know, the fabric of the, the political fabric of the lawmaking body now, the grassroots issue groups. The NRA has a lot of power, right? Hunters, unions, LGBT rights, they actually became quite powerful. I was remember in Connecticut, I was lobbying. Um, when they formed a political organization that endorsed candidates, it was like overnight. I mean, I'd be at the Judiciary Committee where all the civil marriage and the whatever, okay? And it was overnight. And the environmental groups, um, it's true that they don't have the power we want, but oh my gosh, that would be so much worse without them. So they are part of the political fabric of the lawmaking body, and we could be too. The most important thing to lawmakers is to win re-election, right? And how does a lawmaker win re-election? By winning a majority of votes cast on election day. It's election day math. So if the most important thing to a lawmaker is to get reelected, then the top factor um, uh, in how that lawmaker decides to vote or introduce or whatnot, um, our legislation is a piece of legislation, is will it cost me election day votes? When election day votes are at stake, the merits are low in the list of factors that determines the fate of the legislation. The second most important factor after election day votes is does my political party leadership uh, in my, you know, in my, in the lawmaking body care how I voted. Um, one cannot exaggerate the significance of political party affiliation, hierarchy, and loyalty in the lawmaking body. Um, we would like, well, if I'm a lawmaker, okay, so um, the first thing I go to, it's a checklist. It's first, um, well, I, you know, you reproach me about a bill, okay? It's like, uh, will it cost me election day votes? Second, will my political party leadership care uh, how I vote? Um, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, or seventh are the merits. Uh, lawmakers routinely vote against their own values, beliefs, and norms when election day votes are at stake, or even when political party leadership instructions are at stake. But when a lawmaker, in deciding how to vote or act, whatever, on a piece of legislation that's, uh, that's presented w uh, with a political group is, well, any piece of legislation is, um, election day votes, political party leadership, PAC money, contributions, but when election day votes are at stake, as in a political organization that endorses candidates in the district, the grassroots political group wins every time, because the most important thing to lawmakers is to win re-election. In the Capitol buildings, you see this over and over again. So with these facts, uh, our, uh, this tells us that our lobbying strategy should be based on election day votes. And we must think like political strategists, like all those other issue groups do. Don't be naive that in the lawmaking arena, opposing lawmakers and lobbyists and interest groups, no matter how many smiles and happy talk, they concede nothing to you unless they must, politically speaking. Lawmakers now ignore us because they can without paying the political price on election day. So power is a numbers game. It's election day maths. We should always be recruiting uh, as our number one activity more later. So lawmakers, in order to have 
for you to have the power that you could have for animals is lawmakers must fear us on election day like they do all those other issue groups. And I'm going to show you later with just a little bit of intro. This, is, this whole presentation is like a mini, mini intro of election day math and how you deconstruct it. You see how very few, very few votes can make a difference in the lawmakers' behavior. So they must fear you on election day. Some years ago, um, a group from um, – a sort of a funding group from outside of Connecticut – um, approached me and wanted me to lobby uh, for a humane legislation law, you know, requirement of humane legislation in the schools. And they thought this was a great idea, and of course it's a great idea. And they, so they've made this big decision, you know, what their priorities are going to be. And they approached me and I said, you know, I'd love to do it, but you'd, I'd be stealing your money because we don't have the political power to get it through. I won't go into all the reasons that you would need that, but just one alone is that the, the difficulty in getting mandated, increasing the school day with another mandated course is like every issue. There are all these kind of, you know, subject matters that, oh, let's have a this course, let's have a that course. We don't have the power for that. But they were insistent and so disappointed. I said, well, I'll do a feasibility. So I gathered up, and Senator Fafara, you know, chair of the Education Committee, an ally and friend, um, said, all right, I'll meet with you. Um, so I gathered the people from the ASBCA, Humane Society of the United States, and a bunch of other people. And um, so they come out of, out of town or whatever, and we're in the Capitol building, and he says to them right at the beginning, he says, um, you know I support you, but you're not going to win. Nobody up here is afraid of you. Well, I learned this. I was as naive as anyone could be when I started. Um, that in my state at the time, way back, licensed hunters were only about one, one and a half percent of the population. Yet they drove wildlife law and policy, you know, leg hole traps, legal. All. Every year, more and more legislation is one that would expand their hunting and trapping opportunities. And I thought, gee, how can that be? And, well, it's because I told you, like those groups that have power in the lawmaking arena, um, the, and the hunters, um, they lobby with political organizations that endorse candidates. The small number of people in one, you know, one district it'll be, you know, 5% of the hunters, and another district it'll be half percent of hunters. But you get the point. I thought, how can this small number of people actually drive wildlife law and policy, even though the vast majority of so many of the lawmakers' constituents who agreed with us on leg hole traps or pheasant stocking or whatever, would, be, would feel that they were forced to vote with the hunters and trappers because of election day fear and maybe the political party leadership because even though the vast majority of their constituents, if they knew about it, would be horrified and disappointed. You will see when election day votes are at stake or political party leadership's marching orders are at stake that lawmakers routinely vote against their own deep values, beliefs, norms, um, if we cannot protect them. Maybe they want to vote with us, but they will not if we cannot protect them on election day. It's very disheartening to see what, how they'll vote. So lawmakers know that even small political groups can swing elections and that a politically um, organized minority issue group has far more powerful is far more powerful in the lawmaking arena than a politically organized majority, unorganized majority, which is what we are now. We are a sleeping giant. We have deep, broad, you know, um, bipartisan appeal across the spectrum. Now, a political organization, what is it? 
is the perfect one-to-one -one accountability system, which holds each lawmaker accountable on election day to his or her own concerned, informed constituents who vote. Concerned about an issue, animals, welfare, informed, I'm informed if I know that my own lawmaker is going to be taking action of some kind in the, you know, in the state house or in city hall or whatever. Oh, that you know, it's going to make a difference. Um, constituents, lawmakers don't care about the, in making their difficult decision. Um, they don't in how to cast their vote. They don't care about non-constituents. That's not going to factor. They don't even care about their constituents generally. Only the only people that make a difference in helping them their decision is constituents who vote. So the political group works in four ways. It organizes, organizes its sympathetic voters into an election day force. It lobbies for legislation it wants and against legislation it doesn't want. It endorses political candidates. So once you reach a critical mass, which is not that many people, the lawmaker or other candidate knows that your endorsement actually quantifies a number of votes that your political group will award to its endorsed, um, its endorsed candidate or to the other guy. That's where the power is in endorsement. And finally, the group turns out its voters, sympathetic voters, to uh, vote on election day for its endorsed candidates. So before casting a vote on a piece of legislation, the lawmaker knows three things. First, the political group is going to inform her constituents that they've gathered in her district exactly how she voted at every stage of the legislative process. Sunshine, sunshine. She also knows that her general voting record on the issue will determine whether the political group endorses her for re-election or sits it out or gives their votes to another candidate. And before casting his vote, the lawmaker now knows that the political group will turn out its you know, signed-up constituents um, um, to vote for its endorsed candidate on election day. Now, legally speaking, the nonprofit spectrum. Charity, 501c3, that's an IRS determination. Charities, God knows, the world of animals would be so much worse without them up there you know, in, the, in, the, in working on legislation. Pardon? Yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But, but charities are limited in what they can do. They're limited into how much lobbying they can do, and they cannot endorse candidates. So wherever, whatever you can accomplish with a charity, you can accomplish far more with a political organization. So next in the spectrum is a lobbying organization. Donations are not tax deductible, but the lobbying organization, 501c4, obviously can lobby <laughs> all it wants, and it can, as a lesser activity, endorse candidates. But again, donations are not tax deductible. And finally, the Political Action Committee, or PAC, which exists only for electioneering. You know, it can't do the other things. So typically, a group may start uh, with a lobbying organization, industry group, which is what like the Sierra Club did, okay? Then form an affiliated political action committee, okay? That's how it works. And in New happened, I hit the wrong button. <laughs> and in New York City, uh, Voters for Animal Rights was based, which is basically the same as the League of Humane Voters, a transition, um, based on my book. And please sign up with them. And do more. I'm trying, you know, my mission is to convince all rights and rescue advocates 
that they to, to adopt a deep political culture in which we all consider political organizations for animals mandatory components of our advocacy. Start them if we can when they don't exist. Certainly donate money as much as we can to the groups, even though our donations are not tax deductible. And every other issue group does that. They feel it's their responsibility to donate without a tax deduction. And we need, like they all do, um, professional staff, stability, you know, a real presence that's not going away. We need to have you know, serious organizations with staff. And volunteer for these groups like crazy. Okay? And recruit for them because power is a numbers game. It's all about election day math. Again, part of the fabric. That's not really a sleeping giant, sorry. Now, <laughs> sorry. I looked and I couldn't find. And I, anyway, 50% um, plus one. That is campaign lingo, which means that a candidate's campaign is working always toward the 50% plus one. That is, you know, in order to win an election, a campaign, uh, campaign a candidate needs to win at least half plus one of all election votes cast. All right, so it's working toward the 50% plus one. Now, we're going to be campaign strategists too, right, because that's what issue groups are, do. So let's look at 2017 City Council District Race 30. There was a Democratic primary election with incumbent uh, Elizabeth Crowley um, being challenged by William Holden. Now, in most parts of the city, correct me if I'm wrong, but the real election, the serious election, is the Democratic primary, okay? Um, because, you know, the Democrats, it's most, you know, almost the whole district will be Democratic, and so the real contest is going to be between, be between or among Democrats if there is a primary. Um, and by the way, you know, you're going to see that how low voter turnout in election what may otherwise be low voter turnout, helps us, gives us a greater chance to have the influence in who the winner is because by getting more of our people to the polls, you know, there are fewer their voters and we can make the big difference. So the primary elections, turnout is very low. Well, anyway, she, the incumbent, who was not good for animals, beat him through 64 to 36%. Well, that's a pretty strong win. But he didn't give up. He got the, managed to finagle the um, endorsements of the Republican Party, Conservative Party, Reform Party, anti de Blasio Party. And in the general election, he beat her. Oh, by the way, IFAR endorsed him. Okay, against IFAR endorsement. They had a role in this. Let's look at the math. Voting eligible population, I'm guessing, in the district was 92,000. I use the term voting eligible, uh, voting eligible population, VEP, to mean not just registered voters, but anyone who can legally re register and vote. Any U.S. citizen, 18 years, age, 18 years of age or older, not a convicted felon. 92,000 potential voters. Registered voters in the district, we know were approximately 81,000. Turnout of registered voters only of the 81,000 was only 25%. Um, in odd year elections, 2013, 15, 17, voter turnout is much lower than in even year elections. So Holden, so uh, turnout was 25% of registered voters. Holden got 10,653. Crowley got 10,426. And he beat her by 233 votes out of 92,000, 81,000, depending how you look at it. Um, so if a political group could, would, would have, um, okay, 20,309 voted. Registered voters who stayed home in that district was 60,691. Did that go sideways? It did. I don't know why. Um, gee, that's a lot of people stayed home. Winning margin, 233 out of those numbers, 50% plus one, <coughs> 117. 
So the political group can impact election day math by doing four things. One, it can change the minds of some prime voters. Those are the people, those few people who always vote. Well, if we go, Group for Animals comes along and, and then all these people, I mean, so many people are not wedded to a party. They go, oh, there's a group that is endorsing a candidate for animals. Well, I'll just, I vote every time, but I'll just vote for that other candidate. Okay, we can set some people that way. Or motivate stay-at-home, some stay-at-home registered voters. Well, we can certainly do that. Or register new voters favorable to our cause. Um, we can certainly do that. Uh, all campaigns, political campaigns and grassroots issue group campaigns, you know, uh, political groups, they work all three. And they must, they conduct a, get, a vigorous get-out-the-vote campaign on election day, election season. Here's another election. This is a mythical one. Say in this county, uh, county odd-year elections, I think in New York State counties are generally held in odd years, county elections, uh, the voting eligible population per district is about uh, 30,000. Registered voters in this district, 25,000. Turnout in this election, registered voters, 6250, 21%, typical. Uh, again, some districts, it's way below that. Uh, the Wal winner, Walsh, got 60,000, I mean 60%, 3750 out of the 30,000 to 25,000. Sean's V, did I get it right this time? Because I, okay, I, she, I got her permission to do this. She lost with only 40% of the vote at 2,500. The winning margin out of these bigger numbers was 1,250. So Sajvi could have won if she, her campaign, or we, a political group for animals, had given the 50% plus one, um, that's 626, voters, Reason to have voted for her instead. Oh, she's involved with animals. Oh. Um, or motivated the winning margin plus one, that's 1250 plus one, out of the 18,750 registered voters who stayed home. Well, you could do some. Or registered the winning margin plus one, 1251, uh, new favorable voters out of, of the 5,000 who could register or not. You could do some. By the way, a lot of the people who don't register, it's not just that they, you know, just refuse to vote. It's a lot of them, I found, just have moved, and they haven't bothered to change their voting address. Well, I keep going that way when I should be doing this. So I hope this gives a hint to you how even what appear to be landslide electoral victories are often won by relatively few votes. And lawmakers know that. So the political campaign, think of the hunters and trappers, those small numbers. Another example of turnout. Uh, big, big turnout year is the, you know, the presidential year, always the biggest turnout. 2016, turnout of registered voters only, I'm talking so fast, it's not, registered voters only by borough went from 52% from in the Bronx to 61% in Manhattan. This is in a presidential election year. New York City mayoralty election in, in 2017, turnout of registered voters, only 22%. So how do we get all these other people to vote? Well, you connect voting with what's important to them. Your potential supporters are every voting eligible resident uh, in the jurisdiction whose voting behavior may be influenced positively by knowing your group's endorsement choices. It's quantity over quality because on election day, to the lawmaker, to the campaign, to the bottom line, my vegan vote, 
has no more significance than the person you meet at a party or wherever who, you know, there's some article in the newspaper about some animal cruelty case or whatever it is, and people go, oh, oh, gosh. And they mean it. But what are they wearing? What are they buying? You know, foie gras? I mean, pet store puppies? I mean, it doesn't matter to the political group because on election day, their vote is as good as mine. So your, your uh, recruitment is broad and uh, broad as it can be. Don't rule any poten- anyone potentially out. And recruitment as a way of life for our numbers. You get the name of a person, uh, vote a way of life. You know, you can't be a shy person. Uh, you, I mean, just conversations you get into. Take their name, their voting address, their email ad- are you a shy person? <laughs> An email address, okay, and you carry voter registration forms as a way of life. Um, and you sort, so you sign up the person, and uh, you turn it, you submit it to the group, and they uh, they have a way of determining from the, from the voting address to determine the exact political district that the person lives in, and they. They put that, you know, you have a database divided by political districts. And this way, um, if my lawmaker on the city council or on a subcommittee or whatever is threatening to do something bad, just one example, the group sends me an alert and says, oh, your lawmaker so-and-so is talking about introducing this bad amendment. So I didn't, you know, anyway, it makes the, point, makes the case. So you um, immediately call, email the lawmaker and say, oh, dear, is it true that you're going to support, you're talking about supporting blah, 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 and here are the reasons not to. Well, the important thing for the lawmaker is they know exactly what I'm doing. There's no way to hide anymore. There's this utter, utter accountability, one-to-one accountability. So grassroots political groups form strong, enduring, symbiotic uh, relationships with the lawmaker, in politics, generally, one hand washes the other. The lawmaker doesn't even have to care about animals, but the lawmaker cares about your election day votes, and that's enough. So that lawmaker becomes your champion, your protector in the lawmaking building with the very fair expectation that come next election day, you will give your voters in his district to give your voters in his district to him with your endorsement. Very strong relationships. Now, if you reach a critical mass with your numbers and recruitment, it's win-win even if your, uh, political, uh, your, the political candidate you endorse loses. Um, the winner, as long as you're seeing that you're growing, that you get this, you're not fly by night, that you're growing, that you understand what politics is and you understand you know, the, the election dynamics, that the lawmaker is not going to punish you but it's going to want to neutralize you come next election season. So the likelihood is that lawmaker will even invite you to the table, trying to work something out, you know, because lawmakers know, the political establishment knows, that the potential of a politically organized grassroots issue group, especially one as broad appeal as animals, uh, has the potential um, to, sorry, has the potential to, de- uh, to destabilize election day dynamics in the district. The potential is profound, and they know it. The famous phrase, all politics is local. That means that no matter how powerful the lawmaker is in the lawmaking body, he or she is just as vulnerable on election day to his or her, own, her informed concerned constituents who vote as the lowest ranking lawmaker. 
So, doesn't that suggest that we should always be recruiting, especially, you know, we're allotting our time in the districts of those lawmakers who have disproportionate power over the fate of our legislation. Are media, protests, and petitions good means to pass strong laws for animals? Generally not. Ask yourself, and I'm almost done. I don't know what my time is. Um, I actually haven't paid attention. Okay. <laughs> um, ask close. yourself, do they... Hmm? Do they pass the one-to-one accountability test? No, they don't create that one-to-one accountability that we need to be powerful, with few exceptions. Um, Media, I was a journalist before I did this, so my answer to everything was media. Okay, and I designed, if I do say so myself, and implemented some very sophisticated um, um, media campaigns. Uh, Pestils, butt stores and puppy mills, um, animal research, um, what's the other one, leg hole traps. And so what media can do is, without a politicalization, is create an issue. But without that one-to-one, what happens is lawmakers will introduce something. They'll pass some really cosmetic piece of legislation with the support of the pet store industry or whatever, and everyone comes out, they look, come out good. Okay, you know, they can grandstand, the lawmakers can grandstand, the pet store industry can look better, but the animals really haven't benefited at all. So media may be part of a lobbying strategy, political lobbying strategy, but it's never the political lobbying strategy. Sometimes you don't want media because sometimes it's better to be under the, keep as under the radar as you can. Uh, media can be effective for creating controversy when you're trying to stop something. Well, you might, depending on what you think the public position would be, you know, you can create controversy in, in media, like opposing it, and, and you might be able to kill a piece of legislation that way. But um, look for my book or ask me later about ways that media can create, otherwise can create the one, one accountability uh, test, and it do, has to do with letters to the editor and stuff like that, which I've, I've used very effectively uh, in the past. Uh, protest? Uh-uh. But. Use them as recruitment opportunities. Smiling, aren't you? Yeah, I love the smiles. Yes, you get every single person, and you're carrying voter registration forms. Petitions, only if they're designed politically to make that one-to-one accountability system. Counselor, for example, we, your patty canes, we, your constituents, urge you to something specific. Then only constituents can sign no matter how much other, only constituents can sign, and those who are registered or are going to be registered once they get your your registration form. Name, voting address, email address, showing the lawmaker that you get it, okay, and you have a way of getting back to all these people with their email address exactly what they did. Um, I figured this out really early in the game when I was oh so young, and... um, um, there was we were again this first issue lake hole traps way back then and on the key legis- the first legislative committee I thought Representative Bob Farr his district is so upper middle class why is he supporting lake hole traps you know against the ban well it was his party leadership that was going on and so I went to his neighborhood a couple of us with petitions made out dear Representative Farr you know to his neighborhood and started circling his house mm-hmm. and so what he so what people would go. Bob? Supporting leg hole traps? 
And so then you submit the petitions. You don't wait till you get a big pile. Things happen quickly. You know, c- commitments are made easy in the, in the, uh, quickly in the lawmaking body early on. Um, you start you send a pile, little pile, and then say, we, you know, we're going to be continuing and we'll be submitting to you regularly. And they're imagining all these conversations taking place where they've worked so hard to have this burnished image. And with you at the door, if you, with like, you know, leg hole traps, it just, you know, it's going up in smoke. So email, they, you know, like online, you get, yeah, but this, you know, this, this can work at like the law, you know, early on in the process at the committee level to stop votes, whatever. It's, it's very effective. And I think that's about it. Contact me, please. All right. Put this down. And uh, that's another matter entirely. And just to end, let's see, let's end. Uh, to quote the late Saul Alinsky, the father of grassroots organizing, change comes from power. Power come from the organization. Thank you. Thank you very much, Julie. Next speaking is going to be Nancy Blaney, again, Director of Government Affairs, Animal Welfare Institute. Thank you. Um, and Julie, that was really terrific and Thank shows you. the importance of, uh, to the work of we lobbyists, you know, who are in the state capitals, who are uh, in, in, uh, on Capitol Hill, you know, pushing legislation, how important it is to have grassroots behind us because nothing can get accomplished if, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, nothing can get accomplished if members don't think that there are going to be consequences for them when they get back home. That's not to say, though, I, I think I might be a little more sanguine than, um, than Julie is, uh, that we do encounter a good number of members who really do uh, uh, vote on the merit of things and introduce bills on the merits of things and take it in the neck sometimes from the opponent groups. But they can do that, too, because not because they only are subscribing to what the constituents are telling them to do, but they do feel it in their hearts, but because they know when they go back home, there is, there is some cover for them. But I'm, I'm happy to say that there are many members whom I've encountered who really do feel this deeply in their hearts, and they're willing to you know, take some flack from uh, opposing groups to do the right thing. But um, I am with the Animal Welfare Institute. We, uh, lobbying is, is baked into AWI's DNA. We were founded in 1951, as Lisa mentioned, as a lobbying organization. Our founder, uh, her, her father was a biomedical scientist, and so she was very familiar unhappily with the conditions of lab animals. And so she formed her organization to go to Congress and get laws passed to protect research animals, which she did very effectively. Um, Christine Stevens, our founder, was very well connected. Uh, Her husband, um, for longtime New Yorkers, will recognize the name Roger Stevens of Empire State Building fame. So they knew a few people, uh, and, and a few people knew them. So they had entree to a lot of places. Uh, So she was really the power behind the federal law that protects animals, which is the Animal Welfare Act, and we have been behind that and its many uh, uh, amendments since then. But while legislation is a large component of what we do, it is not the only component. And what I find is that we tend to get ourselves boxed in sometimes 
by, here's a problem, we need a bill. Well, sometimes legislation is not the right route. Sometimes legislation is not the only route. Sometimes legislation is a foot in the door to other things. Uh, I like to think of my, of my team as, as we're kind of individual Roombas, so that when we hit a, an obstacle, we back up and look for another route. And that happens a lot. I think you, you probably are all familiar with that, that you get a bill in and it's just not going anywhere, and now what do you do? You still have the problem. You're pushing legislation for God knows how long. What happens? So one of the... Um, uh, really uh, great examples I love to point to is we've been working on a bill called the Pet Safety and Protection Act for, well, let's see, I've been at, um, a at AWI since 2007, and I inherited the bill. So that's how long it has been, been out there. Uh, same, um, same sponsors have been putting it in, and this is a bill that would uh, get rid of the so-called Class B dealers of random source dogs and cats that are sold into research. These are the guys who use the bunchers, who go out and steal animals, who uh, get them under false pretenses, who, the animals come from God knows where, and they're sold into research. Conditions are terrible before they even get to the lab, so let's get rid of and, and funnily enough, the Animal Welfare Act was built to deal with that problem of pet theft, but it wasn't working so well. So we have this legislation. So it's been kicking around for a while, but the fact of the matter is we no longer have bee dealers operating, selling random source uh, dogs and cats into research. The reason is that that legislation was kind of the platform for doing some other things. So just by dint of it going in all the time, researchers are getting kind of sick of seeing it and, and having this issue brought up all the time. It was added to a farm bill in 2008. We were like, great, finally, both houses had it. Um, when a, a piece of legislation is in the bill, when it goes to conference, generally it stays in, generally it stays in, but somehow this piece did not, and it was replaced by a study a propo uh, proposal. So the National Academies of Sciences was told to do a study on bee dealers. Well, we thought we were cooked at that point because they're scientists, they're gonna come back and say bee dealers, yeah, they're the best thing, science needs them. They didn't. They came back and said, you know what? Really don't need them. The animals that come from bee dealers are, um, their health is unknown, they're treated badly, uh, they, the, the, the use of them skews research results. So scientifically not important. We were shocked. But that then just kind of opened up a whole new world for us in terms of dealing with this problem. It enabled us then to go to Congress, still can't get the standalone bill passed, but for the past four, three or four fiscal years, we've been able to get uh, language in appropriations bills saying uh, USDA Animal Care cannot license or relicense be dealers who are selling random source dogs and cats to research. So we have accomplished through this process what the standalone bill would accomplish, so they just don't exist anymore. Now, the fact is, and, and we kind of go back to this uh, in a problem we're facing right now, is you still want that language in the law. 
because appropriations, you have to do this every year. We've, we have gotten the language into what's called the base bill, so uh, we don't have to worry about it so much every year. But it's still, you want the, you want the legislative language. But we've managed to accomplish the goal even though the legislation itself has not been passed. So we're hopeful that since it's kind of like a non-problem anymore, we might actually be able to get the bill passed. So those, that's kind of how you can work the system uh, through a piece of legislation. Uh, approach language, in fact, it's appropriation season right now. It is bananas in, down on Capitol Hill because uh, testimonies coming in and bills are getting written and we're looking for so many opportunities to put uh, language in those bills that accomplish what we can't get accomplished through, uh, through just standalone legislation. Uh, you may all be familiar with the Pet and Women's Safety Act the, uh, from last Congress, which was added to the Farm Bill, so that has passed. This is a bill that will provide resources for providing um, shelter for domestic violence victims and their companion animals. So we have now asked for, uh, asked for language for uh, the money to be appropriated and also to direct the Secretary of Agriculture, who's not exactly animal friendly, to get on about the process of getting this implemented. Great, that's another thing, because when you get a law passed, great, law passed, that's just the beginning of your problems. There is so much that goes into the implementation that you have to just be dogged, if you'll pardon the expression, about seeing it through to the end. You've got to get the money, you've got to get the rules out so that whatever you have asked for can be implemented, and that's where we are with this. So uh, that's going to be kind of fun. Um, we're hoping that we can get that money. Uh, but the, it's that kind of the devil's in the details, and it's in that implementation that you really find out what you're going to be able to accomplish. And that's where uh, what else that we do, with, um, especially with... Uh, cruelty laws and domestic violence is making sure that the laws that you have on the books on the state and local level are being used to their fullest capacity. Uh, in fact, Sejal did some work for us on um, uh, researching a, uh, uh, manuals that we are, we've created for advocates and lawyers to use on behalf of domestic violence victims in using protection orders. Uh, I think we have about 34 states now that uh, specifically provide for pets to be included on protection orders. But what good is that if nobody knows that that's a possibility? So we have manuals on our website that lawyers and advocates can use to see how that law can be used. And if you don't have a specific law, how the law you have can be used in order to include animals. That's when animals being property actually works to their benefit because they can be included on protection orders as property. So there's always, you know, a different way to get at things. Um, uh, Julie talked about uh, media and of course social media these days is all the rage. Fortunately, I have um, you know, members of my team who are far younger than I am and far more conversant with tweeting and Facebook and all that stuff, and they're just great about pumping things out, and that's a way for holding uh, law lawmakers to account as well. 
We just did that with the vote on um, interior, the interior secretary. Uh, because there were some votes that were unexpected in favor of him. And so tweets went out saying, hey, you know, Senator Heinrich, hey, Senator uh, Cinema of all people, uh, what the heck was that all about? So there's a way that you can use media in this, you know, sort of rapid-paced world to hold them accountable. And that does, you know, that does not go over well. So they, um, they really do address that. They really, they listen to that. They see that, their staff sees that, and um, it, it really does have an effect. So we have been able to kind of open doors that way because they do get scared, you know, as Julie talked about. They do get afraid that, that, that this is going to redound not to their benefit. Um, state legislation, I find even more important in some ways than federal legislation because it really is where the rubber meets the road. It's where you can address uh, things that are so particular to your state. Things happen more quickly. Um, they happen, uh, uh, you know, sort of more on the ground. We being rather small, we, we're not able to uh, initiate as much state legislation as we would like, but we do have some uh, folks in Illinois and Ohio. So this year we've got a, a bill in Ohio that's moving along uh, that would require more cross-reporting. That is a term for uh, having uh, humane law enforcement and social service advocates and professionals talking to one another about what they're seeing. If a humane law enforcement goes in for a, an animal call, look, what's going on? Do, is there fear in the kids? Uh, uh, you know, does somebody look battered? What is happening so that they can kind of let their counterparts in social services know. Likewise, especially with child abuse cases, um, you may all be familiar with the stat that in one New Jersey study, 88% of the families referred to the courts for child abuse. Also, there was animal abuse. So it's a way of getting all those synapses firing and getting people talking to one another so that you have a better chance of dealing with the problem more quickly. But that's at the state level where that kind of thing can really happen. Um, in Illinois, we have uh, Humane Cosmetics, a bill that's going through, just passed the Senate unanimously. Wow. I almost died of the wow. shock. Wow. <laughs> uh, we also have um, a bill uh, that would prohibit the use of lead shot on state lands. Actually doing quite well. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that one also got through the Senate. So um, we have an awesome, uh, awesome guy in Illinois who n knows the legislators. And that's something that is different on the state level than you get on the federal level, where you can have much more personal relationships with legislators. You can more, more easily go into their offices and you can more easily have a chat with them as opposed to layers of staff that you have to go through. But on the federal level, I wanted to just kind of steal um, a line from, um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Julie. Julie. <laughs> Uh, no, from you, actually. Oh. I haven't even uh, said it yet. Uh, about, well, <laughs> this, is from, this is from your bio. Oh. The creative strategies. Mm. Um, so that you have to think creatively, think out of your box. As I said, think like a rumba. Uh, so that if you go, I, you know, don't keep butting your head against the same wall. Back up, 
take a look around, see where else you can go. How am I doing on time? So I'm all listening today. It's 7.30. I'm not sure how much time is left. You didn't start until 7.15. Yeah, so you've got 10 more minutes. Oh, okay. Um, uh, I just also wanted to uh, talk a little bit about uh, some ex and another example of going about something a little differently that did not require legislation. Actually, it started with legislation and wound up not, not having it. My colleague, Mary Lou Randor, and I, she is a psychologist, so we are the ones who are doing the work on um, child abuse and animal abuse and all of that, and she loves statistics. So we got the bright idea that the FBI really ought to be uh, uh, collecting animal cruelty data. They weren't. This made no sense. Um, they have a form where uh, state uh, enforcement agencies you know, put in the information about what, uh, what kind of crimes are occurring, add a line about animal cruelty, how hard is this? So we tried to get a bill, it, we got, to get a bill introduced, we actually got some language in an appropriations bill directing the FBI to look into this. So they come back with it, it would cost $50 million to do this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, all right. So obviously this is not the route to take. So we did outreach to the FBI itself, got hooked up with um, the folks on their, their criminal justice uh, um, statistics committees and found out the complicated route to get from a crime to the FBI database. And first of all, any proposal like that has to go through umpteen committee and advisory committees and, and approvals and what have you. So this, this was a 12-year process, 12-year process, until we finally were lucky enough to get somebody on the advisory committee who himself had just had an epiphany, a true epiphany about animal cruelty. He'd been in law enforcement, um, he'd been a military a, a canine handler, and the idea of animal cruelty just never crossed his mind as a problem until his daughter, a law student, did a paper on the connection between animal cruelty and interpersonal violence. And it was a light bulb moment for him. He has become like completely, you know, 180 degrees on the other side. He has been the biggest advocate. He was on the advisory committee for the FBI. He had voted against our proposal at one time. It was thanks to him that we got the proposal through. So it was in 2016, I think, that the FBI, yes, agreed that they would now be collecting animal cruelty data. This is one of those things where, talk about the devils in the details, you have a system where states report their crime data to the FBI. Well, what do we all know? Who does most of the animal cruelty enforcement? That's animal cruelty, uh, humane law enforcement. Uh, maybe if you're lucky, they're in a sheriff's department or they're in a police department. They're not reporters. So we are now, you know, since that decision, we have been working now with FBI and with all of the state reporting agencies, with local animal control, to devise a system whereby they can report to the state and that can go to the FBI. We need to have robust data if it's gonna mean anything. But, and so the data are starting to trickle in. Um, there's a guy um, in uh, Indiana 
who has done scatter maps of domestic violence and animal abuse cases. There is almost a perfect overlap. It's just frightening how closely aligned they are. So we know the data are important. But what was actually just as important was the fact that the FBI made this decision. And it has elevated this issue like I haven't seen in, you know, since I started in this business. Um, the fact that, oh, well, the FBI thinks this is important, so it must be important which is why we have an association of prosecuting attorneys that runs a training uh, conference, which ALDF, by the way, um, um, supports every year uh, for prosecutors, for law enforcement in uh, enforcing law, how to enforce laws, how to bring good cases, how to investigate cases. This is why the National Sheriff's Association now has an animal cruelty committee. This is why we have a law enforcement organiza an organization for law enforcement to provide training, because it's all starting to matter. And what matters particularly is from coming from the grassroots up, and always being there uh, through you know our legislative our legislative alert team, ALDF's alert team, uh, any HSUS, ASPCA, we all have legislative alert teams and it's so important to have people in there who when we say, this bill's coming up, you need to write to your member that, you know, that the member hears from the, the constituents just as Julie was saying. So that's kind of a, a quick overview of kind of the life of lobbying on behalf of animals and, and I think the main message that I, I want to convey is the importance of grassroots, the importance of what's happening on the state and local level, and the importance of not giving up, of being creative, thinking creatively, thinking outside the box, and just knowing that, yeah, it could take 12 years, it could take 16 years, but in this time that I've been working here, the changes have been profound. Lots more to do, but lots has been accomplished. Next, we're going to hear from Jennifer Haig, Legislative Affairs Manager, and I have the Animal Legal Defense Fund. As soon as we get my presentation ready, I'm going to go from here, and then I'm just going to use, I'm going to go like this. You're going here or not? No, you sit there. Well, you've got two people telling you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'll just stay here. And I don't have to have two computers. Um, but how will you? Oh, so should I connect this to your computer? Oh, 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 no, okay. I'm going to do this, okay. and then oh, I'll gotcha. do this. We haven't figured out how to both view notes and then you view just the presentation version, so. Okay. <laughs> That's, that's, that's a bridge too far for non-technical people. Why don't you move a little closer here and I'll move up here. No, it's okay. I can see it. And all I got to do is point okay. this at it, right? Yeah. Or do I point it at that? Point it at this? We'll figure it out. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> oh, you're going to put it on presentation mode. Okay. All right. 
Um, this has been set up really nicely that I'm going to go last because Julie kind of gave you a local perspective, not just local laws, because you also spoke about state, but kind of how to be involved locally. And then uh, Nancy spoke a lot about federal, which we don't do at all, and we focus more on just the state legislation. So the Animal Legal Defense Fund is a national organization. We are based in the Bay Area of California. Um, I live in Oregon. I'm a remote person. A lot of us are remote. We're only about 60 individuals, which is uh, relevant to point out when you think about what we accomplish. Uh, our legislative affairs group is one of four program areas that's kind of on the law side of things. Uh, we're small. We only have myself, my boss, who's our program director, and then two open positions for other uh, legislative affairs managers. So it's... Uh, difficult to to get a lot done when you're just a core team but we we uh we try to have a bigger reach than our than who we are just as four four individuals i think compared to how many does awi have on your ledge team our ledge team is yeah. three 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 four <laughs> then you talk about a group like hsus that has <laughs> dozens and dozens we're big we're small but we're bad yeah. <laughs> Uh, so what do we focus on? Uh, we have uh, four key states that we're working in. You can see they're indicated there with the red arrows. Um, but the bigger picture is we work to get good bills passed. Sometimes those are our bills. Sometimes those are bills of others in a coalition we may be involved with. And then we're also defending against bad bills. So that might be in states that we have our own initiatives, and it might be in states that weren't even on our radar, but they came up because there was a need. And I'll give you some examples of those as we go through. Uh, like I said before, state-level presence mostly, not federal. Uh, we just don't have the capacity for that in our growth of this department. But sometimes we also work on local ordinances if they have an interesting issue that we feel could make um, a splash uh, and have more legs. But how do we pick what we work on? How did we get these four arrows here? Uh, for ourselves, when we're going to decide what our own bills will be, we look to see where are our supporters. Because um, it's hard to do work when you need to engage some grassroots activism when you don't have anybody that knows who ALDF is and isn't already plugged into the organization. Uh, we look for areas that have doable issues. Um, there are states that are obviously harder to uh, get bills passed than others, not just on a general basis, because I could say New York is one of those, uh, but um, that have animal issues that need solving that are actually achievable, at least in some f time frame. A, a legislative session is not usually the be-all, end-all measure of how, when you get a bill passed. <laughs> if so, we would have passed, we would have passed a lot. <laughs> um, we're looking for um, problems that could have unique solutions. Because we use the law on behalf of animals, we're wanting to do things that um, aren't necessarily kind of bread and butter, but something that's uh, a little bit, um, like I said, unique so that we can then apply it to other situations. So kind of groundbreaking ideas. and. When I give you some of the examples of things we are working on, you'll say, well, that's not groundbreaking. I've heard of that in a million other places. But it's, these are factors that we consider, but you kind of have to then put it into the magic formula when deciding what are, what are the things that we can accomplish. 
Uh, and then what are the needs? Our criminal justice program puts out our annual rankings report that looks at what all the laws are across uh, the country in the various states uh, and then determines where the states kind of rank against each other. So that helps us to understand who's got what, where are the holes, uh, what, what's some low-hanging fruit, what are some trends that are going on that we should be taking advantage of and uh, filling in where it needs to be. Uh, and then when it comes to support of others, those are more opportunistic. Um, it's a nice place to be where all the groups work together pretty well and we're sharing ideas and trying to move the ball forward um, as a whole. So these are some of the things that we've done in support of other groups. Uh, the, let's see, the two on the ends, Prop 12 and the Greyhound Racing Band were 2018 uh, ballot initiatives. The Prop 12 in California was, um, as you can see there, about uh, cage size for chickens and uh, veal crates and gestation crates. So that act passed by a healthy margin. Uh, we were uh, glad for that. It wasn't a slam dunk, um, but it was a, a good win. And then the Greyhound Racing Ban in Florida was an important one because Florida had 11 of the 17 racetracks left in the nation. And when now that Florida has toppled, which was a hard one fight, um, with a closure deadline of the end of next year, we think it will be not soon or not long thereafter that the rest will continue to close as well. Um, in the middle there, I don't know, it's a little bit hard to read. Uh, that is something that's happening currently in Maryland, uh, trying to extend a moratorium on the Cow Nose Ray killing contests. Uh, that was brought up um, kind of, I don't know what the technical term was for it when it was originally uh, instituted, but it, the moratorium currently expires on July 1st of this year, so there's a bill to extend that as well we're participating in. Uh, and then the, the bullets list there, Iowa Ag Gag is an interesting one that I don't know if we saw coming because we've already fought and won that fight and now we have to do it all over again. Um, Iowa had instituted an ag gag bill several at least years ago. Uh, we challenged that in court, we won, and now they've put another bill through. So uh, same old story. Uh, unfortunately, they kind of are just using new creative language to do the same thing, but we feel uh, it's probably not going to last very long. Uh, Iowa is obviously a very agricultural state, so um, it's important to them to not give up without a fight. I just think they're on the losing side here. I don't know how many times they're going to do this. Um, anyhow, uh, in Oregon, there's a whole bunch of wildlife bills that are uh, in session right now, both good and bad. Um, mostly we're helping to defeat bad bills. Uh, those, well, the first ones are all kind of anti-cougar bills. Uh, we have a, a healthy cougar population in Oregon. And unfortunately, last year, there was the first um, probably, they, they can't say for sure, but we're pretty sure there was a, a fatal cougar attack on a person for the first time in Oregon state history. So now every session, there's always bills to in reintroduce uh, dog hunting, hound hunting of cougars, and we managed to squelch it every year, but now 
with this unfortunate death of this woman on, in the Mount Hood National Forest, it's, there's renewed interest from the more rural areas. So we're, we're working in a coalition uh, to defeat those, as well as uh, on the positive side, we're supporting a coyote killing contest ban. So, uh, and then the last one, right to utilize working animals is an interesting concept. This is a defensive strategy by um, folks that use animals for entertainment. Uh, and entertainment's pretty broad, so it could be like carriage horse people, it could be people that operate like traveling circuses and things like that. Um, they're getting real tired of successful animal activist political groups that are able to en um, enact local lo uh, laws or resolutions that say we can't do, um, sorry, we can't, so banning these things, banning these things at the local level. And so they're trying to uh, institute state bills that would preempt the local laws. And you can see the array of states listed there. It started off with Texas, because we're working in Texas, so we noticed this one, and then we started seeing uh, a trend in this legislation, and it's going rapidly through these states. Um, I don't know how many of them outside it. I know at the Texas level what local municipalities had what laws, but I don't know in the other places. And But they're running scared a little bit, so they're trying to kind of um, put a wall up around around what they do so that the big mean animal activists can't take away their fun. That's <laughs> so must be doing something right there. Um, I'll talk real briefly about what we did, and please hold me accountable on time, because I was going to start a timer and then forgot. <laughs> so the 2018 legislative agenda had three main bills that we worked on, and I'll describe them briefly here because uh, you'll notice a trend in legislative work. You work on it one year, and then it comes back at the next year because you just move the ball down the line. Um, starting on the left with Florida, we called this FOPA internally, the Florida Orca Protection Act. And 2018 was an interesting year for this. But what the bill would do is codify into law the corporate policy that SeaWorld had with, uh, agreed to with uh, HSUS. Now the problem was, uh, sorry, the agreement was that they wouldn't breed captive orcas anymore and they wouldn't use them for entertainment purposes, only educational. Kind of the definition of where that line is, is uh, in a room like this we can all agree that's a little bit of a moving target, but that's why we would like to put it into legislation so we can actually hold them accountable. Um, the problem occurred when um, both the uh, head of HSUS and the CEO of SeaWorld both left the organization. So now we have a corporate policy that has it was agreed to by people that are no longer in the picture. So um, yet more reason why we would like to make this law. But when we first attempted it last year in Florida, and I should say Florida was the second target state because California had passed it prior. So kind of marching down the line of SeaWorld locations and then Texas would be the third. Uh, the problem is on Valentine's Day of 2018 the Parkland shooting happened in Florida and it really derailed their legislative session so everything became about gun control and the bill sponsor that we had for this was uh, actually from that district and he went to Parkland High School. So he was totally out of pocket, no longer available to us. Uh, the session, anything that wasn't gun-related kind of went by the wayside. So uh, 
through no fault of our own, just circumstances happen, and we had to let that one just go on the back burner. Um, the California bill has a really wonky title, but uh, we call it the Wilk Bill because that's the bill sponsor. So the Animal Cruelty and Violence Intervention Act of 2018, and I did some really non-fancy um, graphic design work because I covered up this year and put last year. <laughs> same, same bill, a little bit of tweak. Uh, this is kind of a mental health bill. So uh, for offenders in the animal cruelty crimes, uh, there's two levels of treatment that we'd like to, to introduce. Um, everyone who commits an animal crime in Cal the state of California would be, would be required to have uh, humane education as part of their uh, sentence. Uh, mostly this would be achieved through an online course. There's a variety of choices, uh, but it's fairly easy to implement that. And um, then the second tier is for your higher level offenders that would be required to have a mental health evaluation. After, at this point in 2018, we were, it was pretty general. We've refined it for 2019 so that it's more, um, once the judge orders the mental health evaluation, the findings come back from the mental health professional who then um, the judge takes that into account and decides what to do with that. Do they need to actually have counseling or do they need a lesser sort of intervention? but really trying to get at the root of the problem than just kind of tossing people, punishing them and tossing them back out into the system to do the same thing all over again. And then Bella's Bill is the New York Bill. Is there anyone who has not heard of Bella's Bill? Because I'm not going to beat a drum that's... Don't be shy. Okay. I'll give, I'll give the, short, the short version. In fact, I'll give the really short version now. I have a couple other slides about this. The basic premise is moving the animal cruelty laws in the state of New York from the agriculture and market section where they're currently housed into the penal code. What that means is the, they'll be taken more, the crimes will be taken more seriously like other crimes that are in the penal code. Um, there are a couple um, tweaks to it involving enhanced penalties for things like aggravated cruelty and animal fighting, but that's the basic gist of it. It gets a lot more wonky and unsexy, but I don't, I don't need to get that deep. I have a flyer out front about it, and you can also sign up to stay involved because uh, we're looking for grassroots activists when we get to that stage. Oh, boy. I knew this would get complicated, so hold on. Okay. This is the most complicated presentation I've ever given. Okay. Um, this year... Texas is new for us this year. We've never done anything there, so um, we are introducing ourselves. And I think the important thing uh, that kind of builds on what these ladies have said as well is just like in any relationship, when you first meet somebody, you don't go into your life story with the dirtiest details right at the start. So we didn't want to go in with... Uh, trying to do our Orca Protection Act in Texas, never having done any kind of lower-level um, bills, something a little bit easier, more palatable. Texas is very different from California, from New York. Uh, you got to learn the, cl the climate and the legislative landscape. So uh, we're doing a couple things that are a little more low-hanging fruit, uh, but still equally important. Uh, these are going to help animals. So on the left is what we call dogs in hot cars. I think you have this here. Don't quote me. 
You don't? Who's telling me that? Allie? No, no. Oh. The, what it does is grant civil immunity to good. Oh. I don't. I, I don't know. Okay, let me tell you what it is, and then you can tell me if you have this protection. So uh, grant civil immunity to good Samaritans who rescue a dog in distress. I say dog because that's the most likely, but it's companion animal, uh, who is in distress in a locked vehicle. So in a place like Texas, it gets really hot, right, in a lot of the years, uh, a lot of the time of year. And um, people often take their dogs with them when they go places, and maybe they get distracted, they get delayed, and now the dog is going into heat stroke because the temperature rises really quickly in a locked vehicle. I actually just got an article from um, my lobbyist that said there was a... um, It was in the Consumer Reports magazine that they just published a study, actually, about... um, dogs or pets and children and how they suffer in these situations and so I said well this is perfect timing because the legislators will respect something like this Um, so anyhow when you follow these particular steps you make sure the dog can't get out in another way that is the dog really in distress you call for um, emergency services can a police officer get here no I'm in the middle of nowhere Texas and they can't be here for an hour Uh, then the last resort is you can break the window and you're not going to get sued for the cost of the window so our soundbite is we don't necessarily think that a dog is the same as your child, although if you don't have children like me, they are my children. So, um, but we do think everyone could agree that their pet is worth more than the, than the value of their car window. And I, no one who loves animals is going to stand by and watch a pet die from heat stroke if they can do something about it. So that's dogs and hot cars. Um, animal possession ban is kind of like it sounds. Um, where this came from in just... Two years ago, Texas only does session every two years, they passed their bestiality law. So one of the provisions in that law was that uh, judges could order um, a ban on future contact with animals during the probationary period, which they call community supervision, but that's what it means. Uh, What we'd like to do is expand that to all the rest of the animal cruelty crimes across the board, and it's a permissive ban so that judges can determine when it's appropriate to apply that Um, to the situation Uh, when you talked about was it your Illinois bill that just passed unanimously out of one of the houses in Indiana they just passed uh, their possession ban uh, unanimously out of both houses it's waiting for the governor's signature and it's a mandatory ban and I don't I think that's a bridge too far for Texas at least on step one Uh, but I'm really excited to see to look into that how they did that Further. They had some really great data as well, and we really struggle with getting data as well, so I, re- I want to look into that. Anyway, that's just s- uh, stuff I get excited about. Too, isn't it? Uh, I think it's during, just during it's probation. During probation. Yes. Okay. Okay, I'm going to speed up. This, this is what happened when I rehearsed this, too. I get so excited talking about all these things. Uh, I forget that you don't want to sit here all night. Uh, okay, I won't go into... I already talked about animal cruelty and violence intervention, so that's the left one. On the right, different issue. The, we call this the rodenticide bill, but it has a cute name because uh, rodenticide... People don't know what that is. Um, and really, it's technically the anticoagulant rodenticide ban bill. So rat poison... Okay, um, rat poison poisons rats, but it also poisons animals that eat rats. 
So this is a real wildlife issue, and this has been an interesting one because it um, brings together a lot of groups that don't necessarily work together. So you've got the animal people, you've got the environmental people, uh, you've got public safety people. It's been a really strong coalition. Both of these bills have made it out of committee and are chugging right along. I think rodenticide is uh, going to appropriations next week. I should, should have said on Texas, uh, we have companion bills and two out of the four uh, have already passed committee, our two House bills. Um, we're not able to do ORCAs again this year because F Florida has a really, uh, they have a shorter session of all, of all four states. I think they're like 60 days. Uh, and they only get six bills to introduce. New York, unlimited. Six. Yeah, <laughs> so 20,000 bills are introduced in New York. <laughs> Florida, phew. So um, uh, the guy that sponsored it during the last session, he is now not even in the legislature anymore, so we tried to find a new person, and she is actually has Orlando in her district, so that would have been great. But um, she picked six other things. Um, and Bella's bill I mentioned. Are there ballot initiatives in Florida or just introduction? Yeah, because that's how they did the Greyhound thing. Okay, that's okay. Yeah, well, that was Constitutional Review Committee. Uh, but yeah, it ultimately was on the ballot. All right, I'm not going to go into the details of Bella's because 90% of you know about this. And if you don't, you can ask me after, and I'd be happy to talk to you about it because I've talked this to death. I kind of went over that. The amendments and things, um, I can get into all that legal wonky stuff. The impact. Okay. Um, Sajal had sent some questions, like, address these things. So one of the things she said was, how do you work cross-functionally with the other legal departments? So there's us in legislative affairs. Um, we've got our criminal justice uh, group and litigation and then contract lobbyists. So the lobbyists aren't part of ALDF. Obviously, that's why they're contract. <laughs> but um, we have one in every one entity. There might be more than one person uh, in every state because we really feel like you were saying about having local relationships as a national organization, you can't possibly know all the ins and outs of every place. Uh, when you're not there, you don't have a history there, and they know you're an outsider. So they kind of are the liaison and can help get us in the door, help us work the system. Uh, but then our criminal justice program is really useful to us because uh, they have, they're the liaison to the prosecutors across the country and can help, that's kind of boots on the ground. So who's actually doing the work once these laws are implemented and can give us feedback on ideas that work, uh, where do we need to improve things, um, understanding what the laws are, how to uh, write the bills properly. Uh, and then our litigation team feeds us ideas from what cases they may be working on, and um, maybe something will come out of that. But we, we tip, they bring stuff to us. It doesn't near, nearly ever go the other way. Okay. Um, just super briefly on the process. This is what you get if you Google how, to, how does a bill become a law in New York. <laughs> so I use the example of Bella's bill. Uh, I was just meeting with our bill sponsor uh, earlier today, and the arrow hasn't moved. <laughs> so um, they're on recess right now, but we're getting a little nervous because June 20th, I think, is the end date. And uh, we would like to be a little bit further, but here we are. So um, 
a lot of what we've done in the kind of the ideal situation is introducing companion bills or bills on both houses, the assembly here in New York and the Senate. In other states, it's the House or whatever. It doesn't matter what you call it, but the two um, houses of the legislative body. Um, the reason you would do that is because it means you have twice the chance. You're kind of going down the path on both sides. The Senate typically moves a little bit faster because it's smaller, so they can um, churn through things a little bit quicker. Uh, but whichever one kind of races to the finish line of its side first, it flips and goes to the other side, and then that's the one that's going to be the lead bill that will hopefully make it through um, the other side of the legislative body and then get to the governor's office. All that sounds, I mean, I said that in what, 20 seconds? Like that's, it takes forever. <laughs> um, I think Julie did a really good job, especially focusing on getting candidates elected and then holding them accountable. And then what we do in really in legislative affairs at ALDF is about getting the bills passed. Um, and defending against the bad bills, but mostly get, um, getting our good bills passed. Um, but I think as kind of lay people that you're maybe not involved with an organization directly, uh, getting candidates elected is a super powerful thing you can do to help make change. One minute. Okay. Oh, I'm on, I'm on my last slide. Good timing. No so I will reiterate um, VFAR. I know Allie's in the back somewhere. Uh, so you can talk to her right tonight and get connected. I just went to an event they put on last night, a lobbying. Were you there as well? No. Oh. Uh, it was, was excellent, a lobbying 101 hands-on training because they're doing a couple of New York City-level initiatives on um, fur ban, fur sales ban, and uh, oh, foie gras, foie gras sales ban. Those are exciting issues, uh, and they've really bubbled up and it's exciting that, that we are going to be able to make we, I don't even live here, I feel an ownership because we're part of the coalition, uh, hopefully make some good progress on this. So there's another event on the 24th at 6.30, right close here at the NYU Law School. I highly recommend that. You get some hands-on training. You have homework to do. That, don't let that scare you. It's really fun. Uh, <laughs> and it, it's empowering to, to contact your um, representatives or your council people at that level and... Um, let them know that you care about these things. And it's not just you, but then the reach that you have with your network. Um, and then the League of Humane Voters, I put up, I didn't know you were even involved with them. The New York City one, yeah, they started it. They were the founding organization. And, and actually, just to that point, they try to um, introduce chapters in all different states and yes. all different county levels so everybody can get involved, regardless of whether they live in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, be a part of a chapter there, start your own chapter. Yes. I'm not as familiar with New York, but these are organizations that I've learned about as we've built a coalition for Bella's Bills, so I wanted to pass along. This may be old news. like pff, We know that. Um, HSUS is very involved politically as well, and they have um, a New York state director who, if you can follow them on Facebook, you can just see kind of what they're up to. Uh, so that's another way to get involved. And the ASPCA also does a lot of good legislative work. So those are some ideas. I think that's it. That's how you can reach me. Okay, now we have an opportunity for Q&A. Does anybody have any questions? Okay, does anybody have any questions? Roxanne. Oh, yeah. I'll try to speak loud. Hi, my name is Roxanne Delgado. I'll speak on behalf of Bronx Animal Rights Electors. We are a political action group in the Bronx. What 
makes us different is not only do we endorse candidates, we actually fund candidates. To make an example, we ran a third party, animal rights party in the Bronx. It didn't do as well, but I think it four percent, forty-four percent. The primary and the general. Forty-four? Yeah, the primary, but the general two percent. Okay. Two percent. How many in the general? Two percent. Do not Okay. Because I realized recently with New York State, and first to clarify, yeah. convicted felons are allowed to vote in New York State. Yeah. Because you said they are allowed, whether they're on mm. parole or probation. Yeah. Upon release, they could vote. Yeah. Second, what holds back New York State from third parties for a single issue is fusion voting. Unfortunately, third parties are not really third parties. They can cross endorse the leader one of the major parties, the Democrats or Republicans. Lastly, I'd like to say, Currently, our new campaign is to stop Mary de Blasio from banning feeding birds and squirrels in all New York City parks. And what makes us different about our group is not only do we care about animals, we care about people. Because last year, we actually won against a real estate developer who tried to take away the Bronx shelter from Bronx residents. Of course, I love animals, but people in the Bronx are poor. They can't afford to care for the pets. On this case, also, not only do they care about birds and squirrels, and I love squirrels, but again, you deny homeless, the seniors is able to, their favorite pastime feeding mm -hmm. animals. Again, mm -hmm. and what makes people of color, people of income, but we always tend to bond for animal rights. So I think our group is different because we don't endorse the front runner because people like to say, oh, tomorrow's winner, tomorrow's William is a given winner. All five parties, the two major parties plus the minor parties endorse them. So let's the animal rights people endorse them because they can send out press release. Donate to us because our candidate won. No, your candidate did not win. You just jump on the front line. We actually are willing to lose if that person is really for our rights and willing to knock those doors. And that's the main difference. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Roxanne. Thank you. In the back. Thank you. I just sure. have a question to any of you. If I'm, for example, at a fundraiser, congressional fundraiser, and they ask for questions at the end, should I raise my hand and should I ask about something specific or just broadly what their views would be? Okay, so the, um, the question is if, a, if he's at a congressional fundraiser, should yeah. he just ask a question of, that he's interested in animal protection uh, issue? I Julie? would like to, you probably, is uh, they'll always say they're interested in animal protection. So you're not going to get anything out of the question. Um, if you're a constituent, I mean, it's good to be a constituent, right? I mean, you're going there, you're actually giving money. Right. So do you want to like make sure before you give the money, actually before you got there, if the person will support something or do you want to like make your case while you're there? But um, be whatever it is, whatever your strategy is, make it specific and then ask, you know, what are your concerns? If not, and, you know, they don't have to give you an answer, but then kind of write them down and say, well, I'll forward that information to the lobbyists who are working on it, you know. That kind of thing. But yeah, don't just say, do you care about animals? Because they all do. Yeah. yeah and they all say they do. Yeah. I think the advice is if, uh, to be specific. I mean, that's very good yeah. advice that when you go in, um, and hopefully you've gotten a comp ticket to this, so <laughs> you haven't actually put out any money, um, is have a specific thing. Uh, are you a co sponsor of this? Yeah. This is important to me. Uh, if not, why not? So yeah. you yeah. can't just get a general answer. You can't yeah. get blown off. They have to say yes or no, and then they have to tell you why or why not. Yeah. So to be very specific about something that's important to you. Yeah, yeah. 
Because otherwise you're just, you know, naive. They'll think of you as naive and they don't have to worry about you at all or anything. Yeah, good. Or ask, you're right. You're asking okay. his co-sponsor or something. Yeah. yeah. Next question. Yes. Yeah, so this mess, this uh, question is is directed for Nancy. So I know the Animal Welfare Act well. Oh, right. Okay. Um, and I am interested with um, the exclusion of rats and mice, which 90% of research are rats yep. and mice. Yep. Right. So I'm I'm interested in your. I know that um, they've been they've tried to change. Animal Welfare Act to broaden the, the animals' coverage, which, which would be rats, mice, birds, but I think it hasn't been successful, and I just was trying to get some more information on and how difficult is it to change the Animal Welfare Act. Uh, the irony is that the act, in fact, included birds, rats, and mice, as was determined by a court case uh, several years ago. Uh, that, that AWI and many others were involved in because they had been excluded from coverage. The court determined that, in fact, that was not correct. And that is when in um, a, a farm bill, and it might have been 2005, where, thank you very much, Jesse Helms came along with an amendment to exclude them. So, in fact, they had been in. They were actively excluded uh, by him. Uh, and with the uh, uh, acquiescence of Senator Tom Harkin, and so they were taken out. Now, the, <laughs> in fact, that's one of the things I had kind of made a note about for a, an ironic development. Because of a drafting error, they did not exclude all birds, rats, and mice, but in fact, birds, rats, and mice bred for use in research. So at least birds that are in the pet trade have to continue to be included. Um, rats and mice that are in the pet trade have to be included. I know, but... Well, but, well okay. just let me finish. Um, bird, wild, wild birds that are used in research have to be included. Now, they have done nothing in the intervening 14 years to even implement or to um, you know, come forward with regulations that are needed to make sure that those animals are in fact covered. Now, to get them back in is a much more difficult route than the uh, amendments to the Animal Welfare Act that we have had in the past few years with regard to uh, um, internet sales of pets, uh, with regard to extending animal fighting to the territories, our US territories that was included in the Farm Bill last year. So that is a very tough slog. And what we've been trying to do is at least to get those who are still included to be included and covered, and they're not. And we have been fighting that fight for 14 years. Yes. So I don't know what to, you know, there's, it's know. Fr frustrating, and especially frustrating in this USDA where the animal care uh, agency is not doing its job. And that is just a fight we have been having for at least the last year. They started off kind of going great guns, actually, um, and they were doing a fairly good job. And then we had the purge. I'm sure people have heard about the purge of the um, records. Uh, records from uh, the database or from the website. Been fighting that. We're fighting something called Teachable Moments, where things that are found to be not in compliance with the law really written up, 
but they're just kind of mentioned in teachable moments. And so that when their inspection report comes out with no noncompliances, they are in fact, there are in fact noncompliances with the law. So that is something else we're fighting. So we are having a heck of a time with animal care right now. In fact, we, the, the uh, groups ALDF will be involved in this, ASPCA, just um, representatives from all the major groups will be meeting with animal care next week. Um, and we expect nothing to come from it. It, is, it has been extremely frustrating. We have Congress on our side uh, for a lot of this, so we're trying to deal with it through uh, appropriations again, but it is really bad right now. It is really bad. So, I mean, that's kind of what we're dealing with across all agencies in the current administration. Thank you. Any other questions? I have a question for Nancy and one for Jennifer. For Nancy, disclosure, my father and uncles were physicians, and they used to argue over the value of medical testing on animals. Some thought it was valuable, some thought it was cruel, some thought it led to misleading results, some thought it was done just to justify grants, and so forth. Everybody was right. Yeah. In your experience, when you try to push a bill, does the medical profession push back? And for Jennifer. Oh, we can I'm let her answer, Texas. and then if you can remember your question. Sure. Okay. <laughs> then then go to your okay. next question. <laughs> um, they, they do, depending on what it is, um, they long ago stopped uh, battling us on the B-dealer issue. In fact, when, <laughs> when we talk about it with them, it's like, are we still talking about that? Because they're just done with it. Um, so, you know, that's become a non-issue. Uh, there are some things where uh, use of chimpanzees in research, let's say, where we're getting trying to get them retired. Uh, that's, that's been kind of an issue. I'm sure you've all heard about the VA experiments on dogs and cats. Uh, so uh, we do get the research community coming out in defense of some of these things, but we have many, many more members of the research community and the medical community coming out and saying these things are wrong. So where maybe eh, 10 years ago even, there was more a monolithic support of anything that researchers wanted to do, I think now we see more nuance in how researchers approach. We ourselves are not an anti-vivisection organization. So we uh, are very much in favor of alternatives. We, we, we help to to support uh, alternatives research, um, but we also provide information to uh, animal care staff uh, in research facilities so that they can provide better enrichment for animals. So we kind of straddle that line, uh, again, as with Christine and her father having been a, a researcher. But the, it is not as monolithic the opposition as it used to be, and much more awareness that, in fact, even um, the, the head of NIH said, we can't keep doing things the way we've been doing them. And a lot of that is, your, your relative was right in that a lot of it is just, this is the way we've done it, this is the way we get grants, and so this is how we're gonna keep doing it. Okay, and your second question for Jennifer? Uh -huh. Hopefully it's not the same one. <laughs> a number of years ago, I got 
involved in a bizarre issue, which I didn't even know existed down in Texas. Okay. And it had to do, really, with how do you define an animal in the issue. And so some heads not, an issue came up, of all things, called rattlesnake roundup, which mm -hmm. they do down there. They're still doing it, yeah. They're still doing it. Well, mm -hmm. you're familiar with it. They round up thousands of rattlesnakes and kill them for, you know, it's a festival. Mm -hmm. And then the irony is they ended up being overrun with rodents because they didn't have snakes. And they went to the federal government to kill subsidize them. poisons to kill the of rodents. Of course. It was a mess, but so you're familiar with that. I'm familiar. I can't remember how I heard about that. Uh, maybe one of my one of my recent lobbying trips there, but I know it's still happening. There may be a bill in the legislature this session to ban that. Um, Texas is a real interesting place. They don't like a lot of laws. They only meet every two years for 140 days, uh, as opposed to this is more of a full-time legislature here. And um, there are legislators in Texas whose sole job, they think, is to prevent bills from becoming law, and then to evaluate the laws they already have and see which ones they can eliminate. So trying to clamp down on things and provide more government control is very touchy. So we're kind of trying to, it's not an issue that ALDF is directly involved with. I know of it. I don't know of another group that is also spearheading it. But um, I know that it still goes on and that there are lots of folks that are trying to get that to not happen anymore. She's in the I think red. The red. red yep, isn't it? red. Um, so I uh, rescued a medical research people this past November. Oh, wow. Um, <coughs> Okay, so the question is, how do we increase knowledge that laws are even needed to make protections that are not right out there yet to develop that voting base? Who wants to take that question? That's kind of a grassroots activism uh, issue. Um, we really get involved kind of after the fact. So once we determine that a problem is, exists, then we're introducing legislation and uh, the grassroots activism that we do is to get people to pass the bill, not necessarily to raise awareness of the issue prior to needing a bill, uh, but if you can do it the other way, it's really helpful because then the necessity for the bill is, doesn't come out of left field. Um, I would say working through more of your local groups, or there, there, are, there are groups in that issue specifically that work on that issue. Um, uh, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, Beagle Freedom Project. Yeah, I don't know yeah, if, yeah, yeah. what group did you adopt your dog through? Um, Happy Paws Rescue in New Jersey. Oh, do they specifically deal with post-research animals or that was just a... Oh, okay. I mean, they have other um, dogs as well, but they also have a lot of uh, beagles. Okay. Um, 
Okay. I know there are several states, I know in Oregon, my home state, that there's a law to allow adoption. Because some states, it's not an option. Uh, and in fact, there's a bill in Texas as well to allow post, they call it post-research, um, uh, adoption of animals. Once they are no longer needed, uh, then they can become pets. But in Texas, I know it's being fought really hard by Texas A&M because they don't, it's not that they don't want p people to have um, happy adoptions of, let's just use beagles as an example, that are no longer needed in research, but it really draws attention, like exactly. your situation <laughs> demonstrated, yeah. that why are dogs in research in the first place? <laughs> so yeah. they don't really want, don't look behind the curtain. <laughs> it's over there. So, exactly so. so that's why I, when you said you, you are working on a bill on this, did you say? that it, And I asked, was it going well? Oh, no, that was the lead ammunition. Yeah. Right. Um, anyhow. I think, I think there is going to be federal legislation on this as well. Yes. I, I don't know if that helps you. And I, I think, think there's a Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, to the, the larger point, too, on just awareness. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the level of awareness is much greater than it has been in the past because of social media. You know, everybody's following things on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, so I think when you actually run into somebody who is unaware of something like that, it's like, really? <laughs> how, how have you missed that? So uh, in some ways, that is where the individuals who are in this room, the folks you know, are really the first-line humane educators mm -hmm. because there's only so much we can do. Um, you know, we're getting, we have publications and we have our Facebook page and we have our website and we're pushing things out there as much as we can, but, you know, every so often you miss a pocket. So that's where you folks can do the biggest world of good is to just make people aware of what you know. Um, because you're all, we all, I still drives me crazy because I have been in this for so long and I still have friends who will say, oh, really? That's a problem? Yeah. Where have you been? You know, I haven't been doing my job. Uh, so, you know, it, it just is amazing that you still encounter people who are unaware of animal problems, but when, when you do encounter them, that's your opportunity yeah. to pull them in mm -hmm. and get them, you know, to uh, you know, be more uh, aware and then once awareness can take root, they can be more active. Okay. Then I would say, though, that they've got the awareness, but then how do you translate into power yeah. into actually pass the laws? And you have animal research industries, you know, which are the pharmaceutical industries and so forth, which are beyond power. I mean, they are so powerful. And so to gather those people, you know, have the political organization. I'm not advocating a political organization specifically for you know dogs and research, although it actually might go someplace, you know, um, because you know single issue groups don't always do so well, you know. Um, although I remember when dogs deserve better started, I mean they yeah. identified an issue which happened. Mm -hmm. The issue that got my, me and animal rights was a chained up dog next door, and um, so anyway, so that that became a big thing. There was a, there was a there was a recognized that they recognized their own concern and the need for you know the 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 humans who were so concerned about the chain dogs, but um, then to form political organization or participate and help strengthen the political organization. So to do both, yeah. I mean, if nobody knows, they're not going to be concerned enough to form a political organization or join it. But just remember that whole 
you know, that one-to-one -one accountability thing that I mentioned. And if I may just pop in there, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but just on the accountability issue too, uh, and holding uh, legislators' feet to the fire, our organization has a thing called the Compassion Index. And so you can go on there and put your senator or representative's name in there and find out what they have co-sponsored. So that's a w and and we also have okay. alerts on our website as as does ALDF, uh, so that you can plug in and just you know shoot off an email to uh, your representative. And, and that actually is perfect because I did want to say earlier that um, the whole nonprofit spectrum I gave you know the charity that you are the political organization the lobbying organization is that those people those uh, so there are some groups political groups that started in states where they knew at that at this stage of you know at sta this stage they don't have the means to have the lobbyists, to have the staff, whatever, but they, um, they can, a uh, group can endorse based on the voting records mm -hmm. that the charities generate. Mm -hmm. See what I'm saying? Thus giving, not having a, any kind of official connection because that would put you in jeopardy, your charitable right. status and whatever, but that could actually um, strengthen the charity's hand. You know, if you don't have the me, if, you know, you see what I'm saying? You're looking... What were you looking a little confused? Anyway, so. Another question over there from the Animal Law Committee? Yes, I do. Um, probably for Nancy. Do the veterinary groups weigh in on any of these important issues that, for example, the treatment of lab animals, or do they stand on the sidelines? I'm not clear if, I don't know if I've ever seen on an agenda for the ABMA or anything discussions like this. Do you try to get them to at least support or vote against? So do vet groups get involved on these animal issues, different animal issues? Usually on the wrong side. Uh, yeah, well, that's right. Yeah. Um, and it has very, I don't recall actually see them weighing in on animal testing issues. Where we have gotten their cooperation is, uh, interestingly, <coughs> they are with us, for instance, on a, a bill to ban horse transport. Um, they are against us on horse slaughter because that is an acceptable means of euthanasia. Uh, we are trying to get the Ohio Veterinary Medical Association to support our cross-reporting bill. Uh, they do not support a bill that would make uh, um, spay neuter, voluntary spay-neuter by veterinarians for low-income and shelters a, uh, something that would qualify for CLE. So they... It, it is always a puzzle. It still is a puzzle to me. It's a puzzle to so many people that the veterinarians, of course, they're going to be for everything yeah. that's good for animals and not so much. Pocketbook for them, yeah. It, the, it, the it is the truly. Uh, in fact, getting them on board with reporting has been a struggle. Uh, Maryland uh, passed a law, I think it was a year or so ago, on mandatory reporting for veterinarians for animal abuse. You would think, duh, that of course they would be doing that, but they have been very reluctant. Uh, many claim that, well, they don't really know what animal abuse looks like, uh, so you need to explain that to us, because the veterinary <laughs> schools do not teach that. Um, I actually brought, funny you should ask, um, a couple of posters we created for veterinarians um, to kind of say that broken leg was an awful accident, or was it? Mm. Things to look at, questions to ask. We don't, we're, and we tell vets, we don't expect, you're not enforcing the law. 
You just see something that in your experience, the story doesn't jive with the injury. Call the authorities and let them know. Let them handle it. Uh, they have become great partners, are, are becoming great partners, and there are a couple of veterinarians who are tremendous partners in forensic veterinary medicine, proving animal abuse cases. And you, of course, know, know about that with ALDF, uh, so involved in that. Um, and also with the, the mandatory reporting of not just animal abuse, but child abuse, because they'll have yeah. you know, the family come in. Uh, there was a case not too long ago where a woman brought her pet in who had been abused by her spouse, who was also abusing her. And she was able to confide in them that this was going on, and they were able to call the authorities. So again, there's an awareness growing within that community. The, the younger veterinarians are demanding more yeah. training in this. Yeah, yeah. They're demanding uh, to have more knowledge and, and tools for handling this. But on the legislative side, yeah, you, you've got to be really careful about opening that can of worms because you go in going, ah, they're going to love this, and they don't. Mm -hmm. Just on the other hand. Yes? Yeah? Yeah, yes, sir. I, I, I'm interested in the, um, the anti-fur uh, legislation, and mm. especially at the state level and, of course, in the city level here. And I was wondering if ALPF, what, what you're doing um, to support that, if, if anything, in California and now in New York. Okay. Jennifer, can you speak by chance to the... Uh, anti-fur legislation in New York? I cannot speak as or well as Ali as can Ali on has. the New York City uh, fur ban, but um, I don't believe there's a state bill at all here. There is. Is that a Rosenthal bill? Yeah, Linda Rosenthal has a state bill, and they're looking for a Senate sponsor. Oh, okay. We're not directly involved in that one, even though she's our bill sponsor for our Bella's bill as well. Uh, she, I think she just said today, she has over 400 bills, uh, which is a lot. I th we have a Senate sponsor in Texas who has the most bills of any senator in Texas, and she has 211. So that puts 400 <laughs> in perspective. <laughs> we don't have one yet. We think it's going to be Monica Martinez. Okay, Martinez. We've just endorsed the New York City bill. Yes, we're in the coalition on the city ban as well. Um, we uh, we are following it. I don't know what we are, if what our official coalition capacity is. Um, I know it's doing very well. There's two bands. One's a retail sales, and one's a more trapping. Uh, I don't know. Um, at my level, I handle specifically Texas and New York, and then. Um, California was one of my colleagues, so I kind of have a surface-level knowledge of California, but my boss is more involved in the things that are um, not specifically our bills, kind of the f further the tentacles that go out into all the other issues. So I'm sorry I can't tell you more about what's going on with that. Do you have a specific question? What do you want to know about it? No, I'm just, I'm just very interested in the topic, so I was mm -hmm. Mm. Um, you know, and then Julie, actually, I was going to ask you if you've been involved in, in anti-fur um, as a lobbyist. Um, I was, but I haven't lobbied for quite a few years. I mean, I sort of stopped that so I could, like, you know, I thought I was part of the problem because, you know, I wasn't lobbying through a political organization. And I did get funding for the book, including from ALDF. 
Um, uh, so I have not been. I have not been. Um, did, and that's the whole legal trap. They're still legal. They're still legal. I mean, actually, we came. We're already. I had uh, with tragedy all set to go. Sort of call it like a pocket amendment. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. It was the sponsor then pulled it and then had misdrafted it to the wrong section of the. Oh. I had everything all signed up. The Senate Majority Leader already to push yeah. it through judiciary. I mean, I had it. You know, it was just anyway. But um, no. Um, yeah. I do know the League of Humane Voters of New York is working still on the leg hold of the trapping bill. It's, I mean, it's, it's the exa perfect example. For honestly, it's been since stuff. 1999 yeah. when yeah. I joined the League of Humane Voters of New York City, and yeah. they just did a lobby day a few weeks ago. Yeah. So, just in terms of thinking about how you could get inspired to get involved in this work, yeah. um, organizations like this, you know, they organize lobby days. They try to get members to go out and get people on the ballot, and then once they endorse them, go out and campaign for them, do phone calls, knock on doors, get other people interested. So that's just one of many things. They did do that lobby day, I think it was a breakfast, um, maybe like three or four weeks ago. And they presented the bills and hoping for movement and you know getting people more involved to follow up with their legislatures, but they need constituents. An organization still needs constituents from each of those areas to speak to their own legislators. Okay, we are at time. <laughs> we are at overtime. This is a very, very, very generous panel. Thank you so much, Nancy, Jennifer, and Julie. It was really wonderful. And thank you, all of you.